The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. This is episode number 36. Tonight's special guest is Kevin Smith from The Kevin Smith Show. Many of you loyal Veritas listeners have told me you also listen to Kevin and would like to learn more from the man behind the microphone. Wait until you hear how his show came about. It will be proof to you that no matter how many obstacles may be in front of you, you can achieve anything you want. I want to thank all our new Veritas members for keeping Veritas alive. I hope you're enjoying the new chat room also, which is almost like a live show and the Manticore Forum, where people around the world are the new network of real news. Don't miss out. Simply head on to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on subscribe. You will get immediate access to tonight's full show, along with all our past shows, our chat room, our forum, and you will receive a weekly email from me with an advanced preview with each week's show. Join the Veritas family and become a Veritas member today. The Veritas Show is syndicated by the following affiliates, K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network, 
105.8 FM, New Orleans. If you need to get in touch with me with questions or feedback, send me an email to mail at veritasshow.com or head on to our website and click on the contact button. And I have a few announcements to make. First, here's another example of the talent some of our loyal listeners have. Last week, Victor Vic Giza volunteered to do a comic strip called Disclosure, One Step at a Time, based on the show's mascot, the Exopolitico. You may have seen this character on the website or on the forum. He looks like a man in black with a gray alien face. Well, I could not believe Vic's talent. You have to head onto our website, VeritasShow.com, and check it out. Vic is a young man with over 25 years of experience and has worked with Disney, The Simpsons, Levi's, Frito-Lay, Kellogg's, and many other companies. Vic has volunteered to send me one comic strip per week, and I will post it every time a new show airs. I will accumulate them in his own section of the website. So Vic, you're making EXO famous. And thank you for the hard work you're putting into this. Second, for a few months, we have been featuring a number of promotional videos made by some of you. These videos have definitely been instrumental in putting Veritas on the cyber map. I remember a few months ago, you would have typed Veritas show and nothing would come up. I am humbled and excited to report that now, dozens and dozens of pages appear in only eight months. This is truly an achievement. They are all great videos, and I want you to know that I appreciate your efforts very much, even those of you that did not qualify as a finalist. And now I would like to publicly acknowledge and thank our finalists in order of submission. Claudia from Canada. Patrick from Sweden. The Weeby team from the UK. And Paul from the UK. And... The Veritas Video Contest winner is Andre Heath from Kingston, Jamaica. Andre has a fine and very comprehensive blog that touches all of the subjects we are all interested in. You can visit Andre's blog by heading to thealienproject.com. You can also watch Andre's video on the video link of our website. And since Veritas is only eight months old, we don't have a prize for the winner, per se. However, once we are up and running with the Veritas shop, I will personally send Andre the very first Veritas t-shirt. So Andre, please get in touch with me, with your size, so that we can send that over to you in Jamaica once we are up and running with the Veritas shop. Next week's special guest is someone known in the UFO community as Sleeper. You may remember hearing John Lear talk about him on Coast to Coast AM and many forums. This will be the first time you will hear the author of In League with a UFO and A Day with an Extraterrestrial be interviewed. Once again, Veritas is privileged to have Lou Balden. And even John Lear will do the introduction for that show. And let me tell you about a few other future guests. Commander Sonny Sito, an alien hybrid with a message for humankind. And for those of you who wanted a show about chemtrails, you got it. A.C. Griffith will be with us in a couple of weeks. Also, I spoke to Jim Marsh today, but he won't be able to appear until after November, since his publisher needs his latest book to be finished by November. 
so Jim Mars will be with us before the end of the year once he finishes his book, which comes after his bestseller, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. And last but not least, he's back, Cliff High from the WebBot Project, who will be with us for a full show in September. So stay tuned. And now, get ready to spend two hours with someone who has created his own passion, his own destiny, another fellow truth seeker, Kevin Smith, from The Kevin Smith Show, is coming up. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Kevin Smith is the host of the international talk radio show called The Kevin Smith Show. It's heard around the world. The show is focused on the paranormal, the strange, and the unexplained. He spent most of his life in law enforcement, serving as a deputy sheriff, a city police officer, an international police officer, and an international police commander. He has lived in, worked in, or traveled to many countries, including Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Spain, Thailand, and others. His lifelong interest in the strange and unexplained has propelled Kevin to view the paranormal from a bit different perspective than many others. Kevin's view of the paranormal is that we only call it paranormal because we do not understand it yet. Now from that perspective, he seeks to discover and understand the things we call paranormal. Now Kevin's wide-ranging travels have given him a very broad view of the world and very deep insight. He's popular with about every strata of society. So regardless of the topic, audiences know that he will be on top of the information. Kevin is an avid writer, video producer, radio host, and public speaker, and has had articles published in magazines, newspapers, and on websites. He has written and published several ebooks, including God in the Garden. His incisive, investigative mind is brought to bear in every topic and in every guest. Tonight's guest is known by many of his fans worldwide, and even by many of our loyal listeners. And from one desert to another, and he's also located between Area 51 and Roswell, like me. I'm delighted to have with us tonight the great Kevin Smith from the Kevin Smith Show. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, and it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Mel. It's my pleasure. You know, Kevin, let me start by saying that uh, when some of our mutual loyal listeners contacted me requesting that I interview you, the first question in my mind was, how does a show host interview another show host? I'll admit that I was a bit puzzled as to how to proceed, but then you sent me information of your background and I decided to give a shape to the show. So I listen to many shows and sometimes the question in my mind is, I wish I knew more about the host. And I, for one, don't like to talk about myself. So many people who listen for the first time wonder what we're all about. So I decided to make this show more or less a biography of Kevin Smith. 
the man behind the microphone. So why don't you start by giving us a background of yourself all the way from childhood and the experiences that shaped you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm an old guy. That's going to take a while. But I'll show it. Um, <clears throat> well, I was, I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Um, uh, I started out um, on the path of being a uh, professional musician and was, in fact, a professional musician. Oh, and um, yeah, and I got tired of that. I got uh, I was a studio musician, and um, so one morning at about one uh, thirty, two o'clock in the morning, we had wrapped up a session in the studio, and I was walking out to my car, and I can remember it very, very clearly. It was just as if I shifted gears instantly as I stepped off the curb into the parking lot. I knew that it's over. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I never played professionally again. And um, in fact, I, I was a trombonist, and I sold my sold my uh, two trombones that were customized, very expensive. I sold them the next day, and um, decided to go in a different direction. I spent most of my adult life in law enforcement. And uh, I was a deputy sheriff and then a city policeman in uh, two different cities, uh, obviously at two different times, uh, was a police investigator, and then was selected to become a part of something brand new that the United States was doing, and that was uh, the international police. A lot of people don't know that the United States has international police, but they do and they operate under the U.S. Department of State. So I became international police, and I did that until I um, uh, decided that it was time to call it a, call it a career uh, in, at the end of 2003, and I returned home. Now, while I was international police, in one of my missions overseas, um, I started the Kevin Smith show, and uh, I kept it going uh, to the end of my international police career, and then continued when I came back to the United States. And that's about it. When did you start showing interest uh, in the paranormal and UFOs? You know, I think it started <clears throat> when I was seven. Um, my family and I, uh, my, my sister and I, loved to go roller skating. And there was a skating rink about uh, 15 to 20 minutes from home. And um, one, I don't know if it was a Friday night or a Saturday night, but my parents had taken us to the skating rink. And uh, at about, uh, it would have been just a few minutes after 10 p.m. because at that point, all the kids had to leave and it was all the teenagers that stayed late. And uh, so I was about seven years old. And shortly after 10 p.m., we walked out of the skating rink across the parking lot and got into, started to get into our car and uh, from the south-southwest, there was a very bright circular object uh, giving off sort of an uh, alternating green and orange um, glow. 
and it had sparkles coming from all around it, like uh, like the you know on the Fourth of July, people light sparklers, you know, right, and they just right. it's just something you hold in your hand and it sparkles. Well, there yes. was stuff like that coming from all around it, 360 degrees. It streaked across the sky right above us, and it was not very high. It lit up the parking lot, and uh, we were all amazed. And I remember my dad telling us, he was a uh, former Marine, and uh, I remember him telling us, get in the car, get in the car, and he just he had to say it several times to get our attention. We got in the car and drove home. Mel, it's only 15 or 20 minutes from the roller rink to home. This is shortly after 10 o'clock. When we pulled up in the park in, in the uh, driveway at home, I remember uh, my uh, sister saying, I'm hungry. My mother said, I am too. And she looked huh. at the clock on the dash, and then she looked very puzzled like at my father and she said to my missing dad, time oliver, she said oliver it's midnight from that day till today i've been interested wait a second that was missing time so you think you were probably abducted i, you know, I really don't know i don't have any of the recollection uh, no no recollection of it and none of the classical signs of it no trauma from it no uh, not, none of the classical um, signs of abduction. You know, there's a list that's published on several websites now yes. of the uh, you know signs that you may have been abducted, and I don't have those. But then, except, how do you explain the missing time? Exactly. How do you explain? And by the way, when your father started saying "get in the car," what did he? Th by the way, how old were you? Don't tell me you were seven. Yeah, I, have, I was seven. Oh, you know why I ask you is because everybody I know, most 99% of the people I know, they have had some kind of paranormal experience. They're always seven. You, David Sarita, so many others. I, I have never had a direct experience, but I had one, and I was also seven. That's, that's, that's why I asked you if you were seven. What did your father say after this all happened? Uh, well, when we got in the car, um, we were my sister and I saying to him, what was that? What was that? Now, um, remember, I, I said my dad was a former Marine. Yes. My dad was six foot two and all muscle. His biceps were approximately the diameter that my thighs are today. <laughs> okay. And, um, uh, he had been uh, he had been military police. Um, uh, he had been uh, he had been in the in the um, South Pacific campaigns during World War II, and then he had been military police, and he had also been a drill instructor. And uh, so he was he was muscled up. Yeah. I I have never seen my dad shaken, but he was that night, and um, uh, he said um, we kept saying what is that what was that what was that. And he said, I don't know, I'll find out tomorrow. Um, the next day, when he came home from work, we asked him what it was, and he said it was a meteorite. Mm -hmm. And even at seven years old, you have to understand, 
my dad did not, he read to us every night before we went to bed, and he, he never read to us children's stories. He read to us from the encyclopedia. Yeah. I knew what meteorites were. They fall. They don't fly parallel to the ground at low altitude. Yes. And, uh, but he said uh, it was a meteorite, and I said, but Dad, I, it, it, it was flying. It wasn't falling. And he became very insistent, and he said it was a meteorite. It, uh, they found it, it, it fell on a farm in um, Midlothian. Well, again, even at seven, I knew where Midlothian was, and Midlothian is the direction it came from. <laughs> so, uh, but he wouldn't talk about it, and um, I tried only one other time. I, I don't know, I must have been 13 or 14 years old. I brought the subject up, and uh, he did the same thing. He said, it was a meteorite. And I said, but Dad, come on. Right. It, it wasn't falling, it was flying. And um, he said, look, I said it was a meteorite, it was a meteorite. And that was it. Take it like it is. But the missing time part, your mother said, it's midnight. Yeah. From the skating rink, I doubt that you were leaving at midnight. So something no, happened. No, we were leaving it shortly after 10 p.m. It would have been maybe five minutes after 10 p.m. So for two hours, you don't know what happened. That's correct. None of us do. My, and, you know, uh, an interesting thing about this, shortly before I started this show, um, I was, I, I, we had to evacuate from um, Kosovo, and uh, they had sent me to Albania, and then once I was finished in Albania, they sent me to Macedonia. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to Macedonia, it was time for my sister's birthday, so I called her a day or two before her birthday, uh, just to wish her a happy birthday. During that conversation, she brought it up. She said, do you remember that thing that flew over us when we were leaving the skating rink? And uh, we had a conversation about that. She remembered all the details that I've just recounted. And um, she said, I just remember how hungry all of us were and that uh, mom went in and uh, fixed bacon and eggs because that was quick. And I said, yeah, I remember all of that, too. About uh, three months ago, my mother, who is 82 years of age now, was talking with me on the phone, and she asked me if I remembered. Huh. And I said yes. So it's something that stayed in their minds as well. And, uh, you know, it's, but, but nobody really has any answers, and nobody really has any, um, any of the classic signs of abduction, but we all remember the missing time. Do you think your father kept saying, it was a meteorite, take it like that? Do you think he said that just not to scare you, or did he know something that he may not have told you? I think he probably knew something that he didn't tell us. And, you know, that's just um, speculation on my part, but knowing him and uh, his mannerisms, um, I just got the feeling that he knew something that he wasn't telling us. Out of curiosity, have you ever shared this story with your audience? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, it's, you know, I, it's not something I try to hide. And um, I encourage people, if they have had an encounter 
with something like this, uh, talk about it. Don't hide it. And, um, and you know, Mel, that's one of the things that I, I'm pretty blunt about. You know, I say, you know, you're, what are you afraid of? People are going to ridicule you? Right. Well, then ask yourself, do these people pay your bills? No. So what does it matter? Exactly. I got tired of the ridicule factor, you know, not only about the UFO paranormal topic, uh, but what's called conspiracy, which I call parapolitics, to talk about certain things that happen with this nation that you question. And some people look at you, you know, why are you even questioning that? That's why I decided to create my own show to bring people and get the answers that we all want. Before we talk about more of your, I want to make sure you did not work for the Interpol. This was the International Police Division of the United Nations. Am I correct? No, it's, uh, you're close. It is not Interpol. That's correct. Interpol is something like an international version of our FBI. Exactly. Um, and the international police are actual police with police powers in the countries where they are assigned. So if I were to be assigned uh, to Afghanistan, I would have actual police powers and I would be doing actual police work on the streets in Afghanistan. Um, so it is, it is different. It's not the same. And, but it's not, it's not United Nations. Um, it, it's the United States Department of State. However, the Department of State assigns a contingent of international police to some mission somewhere, and they may be assigned to operate under the administrative control of the United Nations or of the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe are directly under uh, the United States Department of State. You know, uh, they can assign you to, to work under administrative control of any organization they, that they are cooperating with. I saw that uh, you were the chief of police in Bikeke, Istimer, in Indonesia. We know yeah. of the conflict that erupted there years ago. How were you appointed there, and was it under the United Nations or the Department of State, U.S.? <laughs> well, uh, I, got a, I got appointed to East Timor by the United States Department of State. And uh, that was a mission where they were working in concert with other nations and had agreed that none of us would uh, none of the Americans would seek or accept any of the top positions in the mission. Okay, and so the the highest position that an American could hold would be something like the uh, chief of operations. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, for the mission, uh, it could never be a, a deputy commissioner. You could never be a commissioner, the commissioner. So um, they sent me to East Timor. And I had worked in headquarters in every mission I had been in, and I hated working in headquarters. Headquarters in any international police mission that is under the United Nations is excessively political. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. And I just don't like working in those kinds of situations. So when I got to East Timor, they were asking for volunteers to go to a town called Suai. 
Now, Sui was the most distant um, from the capital. It's in the jungle. Uh, no cell phone service, no electricity, very rugged. And uh, I took a look at the map and saw where it was located in relationship to headquarters, and I volunteered. And as soon as I got down there, uh, the commander in that in Suai appointed me as um, intelligence officer. I worked for about two months as an intelligence officer uh, under his command, and then we got a telephone call at, at uh, Suai headquarters one day, and it was a guy from headquarters wanting to know where was I. And... Uh, they called me in from the jungle and put me on the phone with him. And um, and these are, these are United Nations phone systems. So, uh, but there's no phone system. There was no, at that time no phone system on the island except the United Nations phone system. I was going to say, being in the jungle, I wonder how they had a phone. Yeah. Uh, well, the the United Nations uh, had set up their own phone system uh, for police stations and. And, and other organizations that were operating under the United Nations. Um, and, and the guy says to me, he was, he was a cop from Canada, he says, well, you know, where are you? And I said, I'm here. I didn't even know who he was. I said, I'm here. I thought it was a joke. And he said, why aren't you here? I said, because I'm here. <laughs> and I said, who is this? And he told me. And he said they were showing me, they were listing me as AWOL because oh, no. I was supposed to report for duty that morning at headquarters. And I said, what are you talking about? And um, so they, um, he, he said, you've been transferred. You're, you're moving up here to become the deputy chief of operations. Well, uh, me and my commander had not heard of that. So <clears throat> my commander, I, 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 thought, I still thought it was a joke. And I handed the phone to my commander and let him handle it. And to make a long story short, the command was, get ready. We're coming to get you. Uh, it was about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. They told me there would be a helicopter there to pick me up at noon, and there was. And they moved me up to headquarters and made me the deputy chief of operations. Now headquarters was located in? Uh, headquarters was located in the capital city of Dili. Of the province. And, uh, yeah, yeah, on the other side of the island. So... I did that for a number of months, and um, I requested transfer every day. Sometimes I made a formal request. Sometimes it was just a conversation with the uh, deputy commissioner. But I did it for a number of months. I absolutely hated working in headquarters. And um, finally, uh, there was an opening in the Keki, which is almost as remote, but in the other direction, almost as remote as Suai. And I asked for a transfer and got a transfer to Bukeki. And um, they wanted me to work in headquarters in Bukeki, and I just refused. I said, no, I'll go home. I said, no, I'm through with headquarters. If I can't be just a cop on the street, I'll go home. And uh, so the commander there appointed me as the police chief in Bukeki. How was the perception of the people? Was there any resentment seeing you there, being the chief of police? You know, the people in East Timor are amazing people. Mm -hmm. um, but I found this 
to be true in several countries that I worked in. No, there was no resentment. Uh, they were glad we were there. Um, so there, there was no built-in natural resentment about us being there. Right. Uh, there are some police officers that um, generated their own among the people. Uh, because, you see, we live in a Western society, and Western society, is it has three primary roots. It has Greek philosophy, Roman law, and Reformation theology. Now, those three rivers have created the streams from which our culture and our laws have been derived. When you go to another part of the world that did not experience those three streams in their background, and you try to impose a Western-style democracy, it won't work. It, you, it's, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a wet finger. Exactly. You can get it on, but it won't stay. Mm -hmm. It won't stick. And... Um, so people who, uh, the, the cops who came there with the idea that we have the answer in a box and we're just going to unpack the box and you people are going to experience wonderful things, they generated resentment. People who went there and recognized that these are not dumb savages. These are, are very intelligent people. And you try to make your job mesh with their culture. And when you do that, they love you, and they appreciate you, and they were great, great people. I uh, spent some time in, in Southeast Asia back in 1996 when I was doing my, my thesis during my master's, and I did learn something that has helped me throughout life, and that is to treat people the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated. And with that, you have to learn the culture, you have to learn who they are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, you know, uh, there are things, here's an example, there are things in our society that we, uh, we just take it for granted that everyone considers this thing to be wrong, and you don't do it, but that doesn't equate with other cultures. We consider that to be wrong because of those three streams that I mentioned, Greek philosophy, Roman law, and Reformation theology that shaped what and built what we call Western civilization. So some of the things that we think are wrong are not viewed as wrong at all in other cultures. And, uh, you know, if, if you're operating in their culture, you can... Either you know you, you bring you bring your culture in and try to impose it on them, and that's not going to work, or you just have to back off and realize that you know uh, in their culture this isn't considered to be wrong. I'll give you a, a real quick example. It isn't against the law in East Timor to break out of jail to escape from jail. Is that right? That's right. They do not have the death penalty. And if you escape from jail, that's not against the law. However, once you get caught, they will put you back in jail to continue serving your time. 
but you have broken no law when you escaped from jail. So is the fact that East Timor is not as Muslim as the rest of Indonesia, being that they have a strong Portuguese and Catholic influence, is that why they don't have capital punishment there, Kevin? I'm not sure why. Um, I've, I've heard different people in East Timor try to explain to me why they will not accept a death penalty. They are nominally uh, Catholic. Actually, they are, in actuality, they are animists who go to church at the Catholic Church on Sunday. Right. Because of the Portuguese influence, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, but they, in, in their actual beliefs and practices, they are animists. Um, but um, I don't know why, you know, it's, it's not as if they have some strong belief that um, prevents them from taking someone's life, because they, they do have people that murder. And um, we, we had do. one case. Uh, here's, here's another thing that, that's very difficult. We had a case where um, there was a murder, and the reason was that it was the wife, and the, she was murdered by her husband. And um, the reason was that she would not fix supper. Well, the problem was she had malaria, and she was very ill, very tired, couldn't hardly move. And we would think, oh, this is just horrible. And um, this woman's, uh, the, the victim, the, the lady that got murdered, her mother and dad came to the police station and begged me to let this man go because he's a good man. And I said, how can you do this? Uh, he just murdered your daughter. Hold on. The, the parents of the murder woman came to jail to beg for the release of the murderer? That's correct. Go on. So I said, how can you do this? He just murdered your daughter. Their answer was, yeah, but it was her fault. Oh. Now, see, to us, that, that, that just seems bizarre and, and horrible. Right. But very normal, very natural in their culture. Now, this is something very bizarre to us, and I understand that in Muslim countries, the woman serves the man, but this seems to be more of an ingrained cultural trait to that region or sector, right? No, no. Now, you, you are correct in what you're saying, and the um, and I've, I've served most of my time in international police was in uh, majority Muslim areas. Yeah, Albania. Uh, but this, um, in, in this case, that is, you know, East Timor is a tribal society, and uh, that just that's ingrained in in the in their tribal culture. That's just has has nothing to do with them being Muslim or Catholic or anything else. It's just it's ingrained in their tribal culture. So it's not the religious aspect; it's their tribal culture. Interesting. So, Kevin, how is it that a local sheriff deputy jumps into the international police? How did that happen? Well. Um, the United States Department of State was uh, participating, uh, you know, we, you, people hear about the United States is participating in this peacekeeping mission or that peacekeeping mission. Right. 
and and they don't really grasp you know the nuts and bolts of that what that means and part of that is peacekeeping troops but once the troops have done what they're going to do uh, and this is always you know some place where there is a war or it has just finished but once the troops have done what they're going to do it has to transition back to civilian control of the area of the government which is what we're watching trying to happen in, in Iraq, Iraq and right. in Afghanistan. When it transitions, part of the, of the problems in these areas, part of the problems are the police. Now, if you just watch the news reports about Iran right now, what's happening in Iran is the police heavy-handed abusing the citizens. Yes. So once there is a change of regime, there has to be a change of police. There has to be. Because you cannot have, in any kind of a democracy, you cannot have the police who think they own the citizens. Right. And so uh, what was happening is the, we would participate, but we had no international police, so when it would transition... To back to civilian control, the new police were getting trained by Russian, Chinese, um, police from Mozambique, Cubans, and so the new police would be trained in the old... The old-style communist. And here we go again. And so the United States decided to participate in this, so they, they committed to Bosnia... Uh, a certain number of international police, but didn't have any. And so then they had to start recruiting, and nobody was signing up for it. And uh, we we were asked, uh, a few of us uh, were asked in, in our sheriff's office if we would be interested. So I contacted the office of Senator J. Bennett Johnston, who was a Louisiana senator at that time, and I was working in Louisiana and uh, ask a few questions, and I asked them how much it paid, and it paid roughly four times what I was earning as a um, cop. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, let me see. This is a tough decision. I can be a cop here for X amount, or I can be a cop there for X plus, 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 plus amount. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. <laughs> sure. And that's how I got started. At the time, did you have a family in uh, with you? Yes. And how did that? I was that... married. I had three children. Okay. And um, they're all those kids are grown now, and um, so it was tough. But we needed the money, and um, I I had a great opportunity, so I took it. It's similar to what the contractors in Iraq faced a few years ago. They were. They could be truckers here for X amount, or they could be truckers there for a lot more. Uh huh. Now, international police um, are contractors, but this is something that a lot of people need to to hear. So are most of your CIA agents. Did you know that? I have heard about it. Yes. Most of the CIA. Um, operatives on the ground, a great many of them on the ground, I, I can't say, I shouldn't say most, all of them that I met 
were contractors. They were private contracted uh, contractors with a contract with the CIA. And uh, but these are people who I mean they're trained. Uh, they're trained by the CIA, you know, um, and and so. But all your international police are contractors too. All the American international police. Why are they contractors, Kevin? Why can't they be under the the auspices of the CIA directly? Well, uh, are are the auspices of the Department of State? Yes. Um, because our Constitution does not allow the federal government to have federal police. Uh huh. Except for, and this is something else people need to know. The only police that are allowed under the Constitution, the only police allowed to the federal government is the U.S. Marshal Service. Everything else they have that calls itself law enforcement is extra-constitutional. So that's where we go with the private contractors. And this has nothing to do with the topic that, that we're discussing. But mm -hmm. with the, a few of the guests I've had in the past few months... We discuss how the Freedom of Information Act won't really get that much out. And I'm talking about the, tech, the alleged or supposed technology that's out there and needs to be released to the world, free energy secures and all that. And that's probably in the hands of private corporations. And if that's the case, there's no jurisdiction, there's no FOIA that we can use to get that information out, right? That's correct. I found a strong. That is correct. I found a strong similarity on your first email when you sent it to me, in that we both like to reach the world with our shows, but we also don't like to use the word believe. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. anything to us, does it? You said to me, "Let me quote: I do not believe in UFOs. I also do not disbelieve in UFOs. Believe is a word that means the same." thing as faith. There is nothing about UFOs that require us to use faith. They either exist or they do not exist. There is nothing for us to faith. If they exist, they exist, period. Asking if one believes in UFOs makes as much sense as asking if one believes in doorknobs or beer cans. There's nothing to believe. Either they exist or they do not. That's why one of our mottos on this show, Kevin, is Carl Sagan's phrase and the propellant for me. I don't want to believe. I want to know. Why is this so difficult to understand by so many, Kevin? Well, this is just my opinion. But my opinion is that, uh, Amer uh, look, America is a, a wonderful place. And what I'm about to say is not, is not something, uh, I'm not slamming the country, but it is an observation. Americans are... Uh, generally speaking, optimistic, hopeful, energetic, and very generous. You really can't change that. But what you can do, if, you, if you're trying to affect social change, is you change the information the Americans have upon which to base their optimism, their hope, uh, their generosity, and it redirects their energies. Now, I'll give you a quick example. Back here in America, you, all of you were told by CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC, all, the, all of the news agencies were telling you that Milosevic was doing ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. Yes. 
And uh, I know because I was the liaison between the international community and the Serb police in the Kosovo northern city of Mitrovica and its, its region that it governed. Everything that happened in Kosovo related to the police came across my desk. I knew the police commanders. I knew the cops on the ground. I knew what was going on. I remember President Clinton, Clinton standing on television and saying that up to 50,000 Albanians had been exterminated by Milosevic in Kosovo. Yes. And there were mass graves everywhere. And you may remember this. That I course. saw it on CNN, uh, and I was sitting, uh, eating supper in a restaurant, watching this on television in Kosovo. And he held up a photograph, and he said, now this photograph shows a field. And here's, this is the before photograph. Here's the after. Here's what it looks like now. And um, it showed what appeared to be mass graves all over this field. Well, that particular field was about 28 kilometers from me. So the next day, I got in my car and drove to that particular field. And it was a 100% fabrication. There were no mass graves. Uh, it was not true. It was a lie. Whenever. So they wanted the, to equate this to the Holocaust, more or less. Well, when the Clinton administration was building its justification for going into Kosovo, they told, that administration told lie after lie after lie, and the, the news media of course, put it all out there. But what they did, um, at one point, James Rubin was on TV. He was the assistant to Madeleine Albright. Yes. And he said, we have it on good, uh, good information that right at this moment, the Serb police are holding thousands of Albanian males, Albanian men, in the football stadium in the capital city, Pristina, Kosovo. Mm-hmm. Again, at that moment, I happened to be sitting in that same restaurant, and I was sitting there with a BBC reporter. We, we were eating supper, and I said, well, let's go see. Well, you see, the football stadium was directly across the street. So we went over there. We walked all around it and in it. There was nobody there. But that's, that's what happened. So when, when the news media continually in this country continually feeds the American people uh, disinformation. Good-hearted, optimistic, hopeful, energetic American people and generous American people change the direction of their energies based on that information. So you can't, you can't change the people, so what do you do? You change the direction of their energies. Now, did this have a real effect? Yes, it did. Of course. Whenever the NATO campaign was over and uh, the bombing of Yugoslavia was finished, the Serbs agreed to pull their army and their police out of Kosovo, which, by the way, you need to know, Kosovo's the birthplace of Serbia. Yes. Okay, this isn't something they conquered. This is where they came from. And uh, so they, uh, they pulled out. And uh, we all got sent back in there. 
and I went in as an intelligence officer for the international police. Um, eventually, I was running a unit called Information Collection and Analysis, and all of the humanitarian organizations that came to Kosovo had to come through my office for a briefing. And so I had a list of all of them and who they were and where they were located and who their contact person was and if, if they had a cell phone, what was the number. But also on that list, it listed what group they were working with. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, were they working, doing humanitarian work with the Albanians or with the Serbians or with the Goran or with the Roma? because that would tell me what sort of a security briefing I needed to give them. 100%, 100% of the humanitarian organizations that came to Kosovo came to help the Albanians. And it wasn't the Albanians that needed the help. It was the Serbs. Not the Kosovo Albanians. No. No, they were fine. It was the Serbs that were being continually slaughtered after we imposed peace, continually being slaughtered by the Kosovar Albanians. To this day, the Serbs have to live in tight enclaves that are protected by UN military. It's almost like two countries they are divided by one river. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, but see, the American people never would have just sent aid to the Albanians if it hadn't been for the redirection that they were given by the news media. You know, we all remember, Kevin, at the time, Slobodan Milosevic and, and the Balkan conflict. And mm -hmm. I must admit, I was asleep, as many people who listen to our shows, we were asleep back then. The mediaopoly did a great job persuading us to believe what we were being told. I remember not only the images, the pictures, but there was some video taken that looked like a, a bunch of emaciated men in a concentration camp. Do you remember that? Yeah. Where, where was that taken then? I don't know where they took it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, in Kosovo. They, look, when they, they talked about as many as 50,000 Albanians had been slaughtered and there were mass graves everywhere. You remember that? Yes, of course. All right. When, whenever the bombing was over, and the UN was in control of Kosovo, one of the people that came to Kosovo with a team of investigators was Carla Del Ponte. She was the chief war crimes um, prosecutor in The Hague. And they were absolutely certain they were going to find mass graves. I knew one of the investigators from having worked with him in a previous mission, and I told him, you're going to be disappointed. There are no mass graves full of Albanians. He thought I was out of my mind. Well, if you go to the United Nations website and um, then click on Security Council and then click on Archives and then do a search from the end of 1999 and early 2000, you will see several reports that Carla Del Ponte filed with the Security Council. And guess what it says? There were no mass graves. The total number of people killed in this alleged conflict between the Serbs and Albanians, and it was a conflict, but the total number was 1,210, 
with, and I quote, the vast majority being Albanian rebels. So there were no mass killings. There were no mass graves. The only mass graves, there were three mass graves found, and this is all in, in those documents that I've just mentioned. There were three mass graves found, all of them full of Serbs. Why? Why did we change the population's mentality so that we could go over there? What was the motivator? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have the, all, all of the pieces to, to put together a big picture to understand why we did what we did. And, therefore, I have to say that there may have been a very good reason for us doing it, but the facts are still the facts. Look, when we were told that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, yes. as soon as they didn't find them, that was big news. Why wasn't it big news under the Clinton administration as soon as we found there are no mass graves here? This was all a lie. That's the question I have. Yeah, I don't know the answer to it. I also have the question of what happened uh, last year, you know, during the time of uh, just before the, actually, the night of the inauguration of the Chinese Olympics. You may remember uh, when allegedly the Russians came in and attacked South Ossetia and Akasia in Georgia, and uh, the Georgians came in, when in reality, and this is something that we were not told, the Georgians were the ones bombing the town, and the Russians came to protect them. But that's not the story that we've been told. And I'm a little skeptical to air this portion because a lot of people may say to me, what? Where did you get that from? Well, you get that from international media, not by the mediaopoly we have in the United States. Yeah, if, if you're being told something, I, I usually say this. First of all, CNN, this is all just my opinion, okay? But this is my opinion. CNN stands for Complete Nonsense Network. <laughs> If you're being told something by major media, divide it by 10 and run it in reverse, and you will be looking something like the truth. Totally opposite to what you're being told. Mm -hmm. um, America, there, there's a reason why the movie Wag the Dog had resonance. There's a reason why it was popular. There's a reason why that movie even was made. When people can imagine that something like that is true, it's because they're, they're smelling odors from the kitchen that smell like cabbage. Yes. And so they imagine that it is cabbage. And uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. The, the reason the idea for the movie even exists is because someone smelled something cooking in the kitchen. Well, a prime example of that is uh, back in August of 1999 when... President Clinton was embroiled with the Monica Lewinsky case. He bombed Sudan and Afghanistan to distract us. That was a prime example of a wag the dog moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, you call Thailand home. How mm -hmm. often do you spend time there? And your wife and your young five-year-old son live there too, right? That's correct. And I have an 11-year-old uh, stepson. Okay. Mm -hmm. How often do you go yeah. there? Uh, not very often. It's been uh, the last time I was there, my five-year-old was two years old. And uh, the reason for that is it's not by choice. It's by the extreme hardship and necessity 
that's put upon me uh, financially. Yes. When I came back from the United Nations mission in um, East Timor, I had built this house in Thailand for my wife and, um, and for me. My intention was that I was going to go there. Um, I was going to work here for a year and then I was going there and uh, retire. And um, what I discovered when I got back here is that my personnel records at two police agencies that I worked for have been erased. Erased. If if you're an employer, I fill out the application, you want to know where I've been and what I was doing. You want me to account for my time. So I have to put those police agencies on the application. Yes. When your HR department checks with them, they will be told, we have no record that he was ever here. But I have the, the, I still have my commission cards from those two different agencies, where I was commissioned as a police officer, signed by the police chief and the mayor. And yet my personnel records have vanished from there. How can this happen, Kevin? <laughs> well, I have my suspicions. I think you probably have yours as well. Um, but that has made it impossible for me um, to find employment that is commensurate with my training, my education, and my experience. And um, so I've had to survive on um, either minimum wage or just above minimum wage jobs since I got back because no employer wants to touch that. Even when you walk in with a commission card, they, they're nervous. You know, they say, well, how can this happen? What's right. up here? You know, and they're nervous about it. So, um, in my opinion, I've been stepped on uh, by people inside the U.S. government. Huh. I didn't want to uh, open this kind of worms, but you just did. And when you said uh, you may have... I have nothing to lose. Exactly. And you said... Except my life, and what's that worth to me if I can't, uh, if I can't be free? You said to me, you may have your suspicions, Mel, and I do. And it is obvious to me that two police departments had your records. And in the age of technology, there's no way that you can find records on the employment of Kevin Smith back then. So that only leads me to one conclusion. And it is obviously what our audience probably is suspecting, too, that you are trying to, they're trying to silence you. Am I correct in my assumption? Well, that's my suspicion, yeah. It hasn't worked very well, though. No. You and I are talking, right? That's correct. Why can't you do this show from Thailand? If techno- you, You've transmitted, you broadcast this show from, from Phoenix right now, but you've done it from Kosovo, Macedonia, Italy, Romania, Thailand, Australia, wherever you are. Why can't mm-hmm. you do it from Thailand? I could. But the only thing is this. In order... See, they don't have... Thailand does not have anything even remotely like our green card. Mm-hmm. But you're married to a, a Thai person, right? That's right. However, the maximum number of years on a marriage visa, you get five years, and then you have to renew it. Okay. okay? Uh, you have to, in order to immigrate, you have to be able to put 800,000 Thai bot in the bank in Thailand, and you have to leave it there. You cannot touch it. For it's for those there. of us who, who want to know what the equivalent of of that would be, how much would that be in dollars or euros? 
Oh, that would be about forty-two dollars to $45,000. Okay, kind of collateral. Uh, yeah. Okay. Then on top of that, you have to show that you have an income in Thailand, um, and this applies to Americans, Canadians, and Japanese. You have to have an income of 50000 Thai baht, which is... Oh, roughly. I mean, you know, it fluctuates, but roughly around twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month. Okay. That doesn't sound like much to us. That is a very high salary in Thailand. Yes. Uh, consider that the average Thai earns about three to four hundred dollars per month. All right. So then, on top of that, Thailand has a long list of jobs that only Thai people can hold. And it just happens to cover all of my skills. So basically you cannot replace a Thai in what you know how to do, except for your show. Even my show, I would have to form a Thai company, um, and that company would have 51% ownership by a Thai Oh, which my. would not be a problem uh, for me because my wife is Thai. Right. <clears throat> but um, but that those are the realities. Um, uh, I could not own the show. I didn't know that uh, in Thailand, foreign corporations could not own majority. You just enlightened me. I had forgotten that. Yeah, they can't. And um, uh, but here's the sad thing. See, people are hearing this and they're they're thinking, man, that's restrictive. It is. And even with all of that, you are about 80% more free as an individual in Thailand than you are right here. I've heard that. I've heard that. My brother-in-law loves going to Thailand. He just absolutely loves it, and he loves the people. Oh, I love it, too. My house is right next to, it's, it's very near the Mekong River. Oh. Uh, right, right across the river is Laos. And uh, you look across the river, and it's just the mountains of Laos. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, when you said that your wife and your five-year-old son and, and your 11-year-old stepson were in Thailand, I all of a sudden the name Art Bell came to mind. And you may suspect why I'm thinking about that. And you probably know Art Bell, of course. Yeah. And the fact that he's having a problem now he went he had he married a filipino lady they had a child they moved there a few months out of the year and back here to nevada but then they went back to the philippines and now he cannot return his wife and his daughter back here and apparently they're putting a lot of uh, pressure not to allow her back how can that happen when he's a us citizen and he's been married to her for years now well I don't know the particulars of his case, but in general, we are living in a siege mentality in this country, and um, all across all across this country. As soon as nine one one happened, Americans went mush-headed, and they wanted the government to protect us, protect us. Yes. And as much as I know people don't want to hear this, they need to hear this. Nobody on this planet can protect you from a terrorist. If he really wants you, he can and will get you. Now, as an example, the most 
militarized society on this planet is Israel. Yes. You go to Israel, every two inches there's a cop, there's a Mossad agent, there's military, uh, they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere. They have Israel locked down tight against terrorism. Ask yourself this, do terrorists still strike in Israel? Yeah, almost every day. You cannot protect yourself. You cannot make yourself safe from terrorists. You can make yourself a little bit safer. But in the effort to make yourself safe, you can make yourself not free. And that's what is happening. That's what has happened and is continuing to happen here in this country. Well, that's what the Patriot Act is all about. You relinquish your freedom for protection, for security. Yeah, there is no security. There is none. Life is a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. And we happen to be uh, living in really, really dangerous times because there are really dangerous people. Now, I don't, uh, I'm not militant. Not at all. Nevertheless, I will tell you that the only cure for a terrorist is lead in the head. You cannot negotiate peace with a terrorist. Nothing he says is genuine. He has no integrity, and the only way to deal with him is to eliminate him. Yeah, but do we have the will to eliminate that many people from the planet? We do not, therefore we cannot be safer. And I want to get your impression on this. You open the door to talk about 9-11 and some other uh, topics. But we have to take mm -hmm. our one and only break. And after okay. that, I want to get to the nitty-gritty on how the Kevin Smith show started, what motivated you to start it, and so on. But before okay. we take a break, tell our audience how to listen to your show, how to get in touch with your work. The easiest way is to go to kevinsmithshow.com, and there are links to other listen options there. But you can listen right there at kevinsmithshow.com. Uh, in my opinion, you're one of the best. I love your candor, the way you treat your, your guests, you're smart, and... Honestly, I look up to you. I indirectly, I feel like you're you're a mentor to me. So I look forward to the next hour. Right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the great Kevin Smith from the Kevin Smith Show. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to the Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Lou Balden, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 